Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. In December, my colleague Alexa Gigas published a story about the Strong family, Holly, Kyle, and their four kids. They're middle-class Rhode Islanders who spiraled into homelessness last year. In their search for housing, they spent more than $40,000 on hotel rooms and more than $5,000 on rental application fees. They're still living in a hotel. Alexa and Holly are both here to tell us more about their story. After a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Holly Barchi and my colleague, Alexa Gigas. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Ed. Thank you for having me. So your family story was read by tens of thousands of Globe readers when it was published three months ago. For people who don't know your story, how did this happen? Like, How did this all come about? So my landlord had came to me and said that he needed the house for a personal issue. And that was in August, a year and a half ago. So I told him, I do have a lease until January. If I find something in the meantime, we can break the lease and I'll go. Looking, looking, looking. This was during COVID and there was just nothing. I mean, it wasn't just that there was it was too expensive when you're looking for an apartment. There was just nothing available. There was just nothing available. Wow. So come January, he never contacted me and I never contacted him. I paid him. I never seen him to pay him. I would pay him through Apple Pay. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, a sheriff knocked on my door and served me court papers. Oh, wow. And you were up to date on your on your rent. I was. So then we went in front of the judge, and they gave us until March 1st. I didn't have a lawyer to represent me. I'm sure I probably could have gotten more time, but I didn't know nothing about it. The first time I was served papers, I didn't know that I had to send the paper back in. Yeah. I didn't realize it. Like, they just dropped off a stack of papers. So because I didn't send that paper back in, this was like my one shot at court. And I didn't realize that when I went back to see if there was anything I could do, she was like, no, you never sent the papers back in. So this is just a final, like, there's no help for you. It's over. So I couldn't find nothing. March 1st, we left. And 
we took our savings and our kids. We put everything in a um, storage, and we went to a hotel. When Alexa wrote about this, I was struck by the fact that that fact that you were evicted has been a big obstacle for you. Like, even though you were up to, up to date on your rent, uh, tell me about how much of a problem that was. I don't get past anywhere. As soon as I say I have an eviction and go to explain the reason why, they just don't want to hear it. I have a paper stating that this was a stipulation eviction, that I didn't owe any money. It was the landlord needed it, the unit for personal use. Nobody even wants to look at the letter because they just say, hope you have an eviction. They'll take an application from me. They'll take the fee from me. But I don't ever hear back. Can you just talk to us about the process of looking for an apartment? So I look online, Facebook Marketplace, Craigslist. I've looked everywhere. Um, Zillow, all rental apps you can download. I'll make appointments to go view them. I get there. you got to fill out the application, sometimes pay the application fee. I've been asked to fill out the application before I even go hmm. to view the apartment and pay the application fee because if I don't qualify, then they're not going to make an appointment for me to see it. I go see it. I've explained to some people the situation, told them about the article. I had a woman tell me she purchased her first home 10 years ago because she had she was a mom of four kids and couldn't rent a place herself. She had two units available. She was going to give us a call back no matter what happened. She never called us back. It's been like that with everybody. You know, the, and if I call and check up on it, well, there was people that are qualified. Somebody made, even if it was 50 cents more a year than us, somebody makes more money than you, somebody has a better credit score than you, somebody has less kids than you. And when you were looking, how much were you spending on the application fees? Because in Rhode Island, I know they, they charge you just to apply for an, an apartment, right? The uh, We spent um, $5,000 total. The lowest one I ever paid was $25, but that's per adult. So per I, adult. Per, per adult. For everything that they're looking up, they can they can look it up for free. They can see it for free. I even told some landlords, like, I'll show you my credit score. Oh, no, it doesn't affect your credit score. Yeah, it doesn't affect your credit score the first five times they look it up. But when you're filling out as many applications as we did, it ends up affecting your credit score. So I can show you. I don't need to pay you to look it up. You want my record? I can go get my BCI done and I'll show it to you. But yeah, yeah. they're paying you to look up things they can see for free on the Internet. And where have you been living since you were evicted? So we spent eight months at a hotel, and then from the hotel we went to a campground for three weeks in the beginning of September. We were told we weren't homeless because we were living in a hotel. And then the only way to be considered homeless in Rhode Island by federal law is to sleep outside. Well, I said to them, how do I sleep outside? I have children. If I go sleep outside, you're going to come take my kids. You're going to send the B the DCYF after me, and they're going to take my kids. And I'm not just letting my kids sleep outside. They said the only way to get around it is to go to a campground. That would have been nice to know back in March, April, May, June, when I was spending all the money at the hotel, and we could have went camping and enjoyed it. But we went in September when it was raining oh. and terrible. Yeah, yeah. So we were told to give them a week or two. And they could maybe have some help for us with a family shelter or help us find a place. So we went. We were there for three weeks. At the beginning of week number three, they kind of told us, well, your family is really big. There's no help for you guys. Wow. The average size of a family in Rhode Island is a mom and a dad and two and a half kids. I have four children. They're like, your family is really big. You could get more help if you guys were divorced. Huh. 
or if you were um, had a domestic violence situation oh or you had goodness. a drug habit. I mean, it sounds like the government wanted you to move outside, take the kids and sleep outside in order to qualify. Alexa, how can that be? What, what do other states do? Yeah, I mean, Rhode Island does not have a right to shelter law, which would actually guarantee a family with children that are under the age of 18 shelter of any kind, even if the state has to pay for a hotel room. That's actually what Massachusetts does. Huh. If a family does not have a proper housing for one particular night, the state will have to pay for that family to go into a hotel. Because Holly and her family were paying out of pocket for their hotel, even if that quantified to over $40,000 over several months, it meant that they could afford to stay in that hotel and the state did not step in. Um, Holly was absolutely right. You know, because Rhode Island has to follow their definition one of what homelessness means under HUD's rules, which means that you're sleeping outside, literally, you have to just go out there and sleep in a tent, sleep on the streets in order to qualify for shelter. Is anybody proposing a change to Rhode Island law on that point? Not that I've seen so far. Alexa, let's stick with you. Give us the context. How many families in Rhode Island are caught up in this housing crisis? According to national reports that I've read, most renters throughout Rhode Island are cost burden, which means that they are spending more than 30 percent of their total income on housing alone. Extremely cost burden, which makes up over half of our renters at this point, means that you're spending over 50 percent of your total income. It's a simple math issue. You know, when there's no supply, there's increased demand, then prices are going to rise. Rhode Islanders in 2022, for example, they needed to earn earn over $24 an hour just to afford an average two-bedroom apartment. I think it's probably a lot more than that at this wow. point. Wow. And do you have any sense of whether Rhode Island's faring any better or worse than other states, or is this just a national crisis? There's definitely a housing crisis across the U.S. at this point. In other states like Massachusetts, New York, California, there are protections for families that are either low income or unhoused, especially when they have children. Rhode Island doesn't have those protections. You know, I saw a statistic recently that said there are over 49,000 extremely low income households in this state, but there's a shortage of over 24,000 affordable and available rental homes. 24,000. Right. So we don't have rental homes for just this income bracket alone, let alone every other. So it's really just exacerbating the issue when we don't build. You know, Holly, it wasn't that long ago that you were living in a stable place and your family was making about 80000 a year. So for those who are listening and thinking, oh, that's too bad, but that couldn't happen to me, what would you tell them? Oh, it can happen to you. It can absolutely happen to anybody. Some people listening might assume, oh, if people don't have a home, they're not working. But tell us, you've been working all along, right? We have been working all along. So when we went to the hotel, Kyle was working. He's actually been laid off for the winter. So right now I'm working two jobs. Wow. When you were living in the campground, was Kyle able to go to work? Kyle was able to go to work. He did miss three days. We had some really bad storms, and he stayed home to make sure me and the kids could get back and forth to the bathroom because we were staying in a tent, so there was no bathroom. We were in the mud, so he wanted to make sure nobody got hurt, and he wanted to stay there with us to protect us as much as he could from the weather that was going on outside because the storming was really bad, and we were stuck for 36 hours in the tent. But all that time, how many, he just missed how many days? Three days. Oh, wow. And can you imagine that? Can you imagine working a hard, laborious job as a roofer, sleeping outside in the cold or in the heat, like as it was over Labor Day weekend, when it's raining, when it's pouring, you're worried about the health and well-being of your children, and then you have to go to work the very next day? I can't imagine that. Earlier this month, Alexa, members of the General Assembly introduced legislation that was inspired in part by Holly's family story. What are some of the bills the legislature is considering? 
Right. So, yes, Speaker Shikarchi and Representative David Morales, they've both introduced bills that would actually wipe out um, the application fees that landlords are charging, which is obviously a barrier not to just those who are unhoused, but also other low-income families. Other parts of Speaker Shikarchi's legislation package looks at producing more units, but certainly does not force municipalities to actually build housing. So are we going to see a difference? I'm not sure. The Speaker says that, you know, he'll see progress by building permits. Permits, but that can be for another year, two years, three years, especially when lead times for apartment units could be 24 to 36 months. Other pieces of legislation are definitely trying to provide more protections for tenants um, and even build a landlord registry that would be housed with the Secretary of State's office. But at this point, none of those bills have been passed. Holly, you testified before the House Judiciary Committee about these housing proposals, but uh, how many other families in similar situations are you representing when you when you talk to them? There's a lot of families. Actually, I've been meeting more and more every day that I've been at this new hotel because that's where a lot of them have been staying from the place that's paying for us to stay there. And my thing is, even after I find a place, I'm not going to stop. Everything needs to change because children don't deserve to have to live like this ever. No child deserves to live like this. Adults are adults. And if it was just me and my husband, I could figure it out. But my kids don't deserve to have to come to me crying that they want a house, they want a bedroom, they want to not have to worry about if they have to leave their place every day. No children should ever have to go through this. And I'm able to financially pay for somewhere to go. There's families that can't pay for it right where I'm staying. So if this program stops paying for them to stay at the hotel, where are they going? That's not fair to any child to ever have to live like that. And this has been a year, my family, a year. My daughter went from being a baby, an infant, not walking, to walking, talking, and still not having a house in one year. Like, that's terrible. We can't even make memories. This is this has been such a, a trying experience. Where do you find the strength every day? I don't know. <laughs> my kids. I don't want my kids to suffer any more than they already do. So I don't let them see any of it. I don't let them see the stress, the crying, the tears. Because it's sad enough when they come to me asking me for bedrooms and you know, I want my friends to come sleep over my my older girls. And I'm like, yeah, we can't have sleepovers right now. Alexa, can you talk about your, the reaction to the story? What are people saying about it? You know, in some circles at the State House, especially among housing advocates, the strong family, Holly, her husband, Kyle, and their four children are kind of a household name. They are definitely being talked about when it comes to new legislation that they say needs to be passed to become law to protect families like Holly's. However, you know, when will we actually start seeing that change? I'm not sure yet. Holly, as you've gone through all this, what's, what's been the worst moment? Every moment. My kids, when my kids come to me and say, Mom, did you find a house yet? Every time we leave to go look at a place or we leave to go do something without them. Mom, did you find, did you find me a house yet? My three-year-old son, Mom, did you find me a bedroom yet? And as you've gone through it, what's been some, what's been the biggest act of kindness you've experienced? <sighs> the donations to the GoFundMe. I've had um, um, another group 
that does a nonprofit organization for food. They've been sending me um, gift cards every month for food. Just a lot of messages about how they feel badly for my family. And they was, wish there was something more they could do. Yeah, tell me about the GoFundMe. How much is it raised and, and, and what do you use the money for? So it's up to 45000 now. We actually bought a vehicle. It's a 2017 Infiniti QXQ60, I believe. I didn't pick it out. My husband <laughs> did. <laughs> so we spent about half of the GoFundMe that we got up front on it, and the rest of it we put in the bank. So that money's just in the bank sitting there waiting for our landlord to be like, hey. <laughs> wow, yeah, yeah. Alexa, you've been writing a ton of stories about Rhode Island's housing crisis. So two questions. What's the main thing that needs to change, and when do you think things will get better? You know, Rhode Island has underinvested in our housing for the last three decades plus. It's probably going to take that and then some to fix the crisis that we're in right now. Like I said before, we don't have affordable housing. We don't have subsidized housing. We don't have starter homes. We don't have mid-tier homes for working families. We just don't have the housing stock that's necessary. Tens of thousands of units. When I speak to advocates or those on the front lines that are trying to match families with new units or um, finding a new home, they're starting to tell people, maybe you should think about living in another state. Do you have family that, you know, live in Massachusetts, that live in Connecticut, that live elsewhere? We'll buy your plane ticket because at the end of the day, buying that plane ticket is going to be one way and it's going to be a whole lot cheaper than you constantly applying for rental applications or trying to find a home here. They just don't exist. Holly, what do you think is the main thing that needs to change? Everything about the situation needs to change. They need to build more homes. They need more help in finding these homeless families homes. They need to change these corporations coming in and just buying all these units up. And it's just like a robot when you go to see these places. And if you, your credit score isn't 700 or better, if you're, you don't, you know, you don't make $100,000 a year down to, I've been told my family's too big. I have too many kids to live in houses. For a three-bedroom, I was told they only wanted four people, two adults and two children. Multiple times that's happened. Landlords need to have rules as well. If I can make it work for a three-bedroom for my family, what, what's that? You own the house, but we're not going to destroy the house. I'm just asking you to take my money. And that was the whole, t the whole thing the whole time. I just wanted somebody to take my money. And, and what's your ideal situation? If you could envision a year from now, where would you like to be? In a home with my children. We like a single family house, but I'll take anything. I'll take a fourth floor. I'll walk up with a bad back. <laughs> you know, I just, I would at this point take anything just to have a living room, a kitchen, and my kids have a room. I don't even care if I don't have a room. Holly, Alexa, thank you both for joining us today, and I hope that wish comes true. Thank you. Thanks, Ed. For more coverage of the Strong's family story and Rhode Island's housing crisis, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. 
Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor. Follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport. Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.